You're listening to It's More Complicated Than That, a podcast about world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. Hi, I'm Kevin Dunn, Professor of Political Science and Director of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. And I'm Vikash Yadav, Associate Professor of Political Science and Asian Studies at HWS and also a member of the International Relations Program. Now, I'm usually joined by Professor Stacy Philbrick Yadav, but she's on leave this semester. So the plan has been to have a rotating guest from the International Relations Program serve as a co-host for different episodes. Vikash, I'm really excited to have you here. Can you just explain briefly what you work on and the courses you teach? I teach courses primarily on issues of political economy with a regional focus on South Asia, particularly India. As always, each episode of this podcast is put together by one of our IR majors, and today's episode focuses on the farmers' protests in India. We're joined by the architect of this episode, Sadia Rahman. Hi, Sadia. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. Very excited to be here. I'm Sadia Rahman, a senior at the colleges. I am double majoring in international relations and religious studies. I am also the president of the South Asian Student Association here on campus. That's great. You know, both Vakash and I have had you in classes before, and I was your advisor for your summer research project on this topic. Can you tell us how you got interested in the farmers' protests in India and what you focused on in particular for that summer research project? So I became interested in the farmers' protest because I kept seeing coverage for it on my Instagram feed at first, and this was around December of 2020. It was about a month or so later that I saw coverage of the protests on major media platforms like the New York Times, the BBC, and Al Jazeera. For my summer research project, I decided to focus on the question of how the protests moved from being a domestic protest in India onto the international stage. I looked at the role of social media as creating counterpublics for people to engage in creating discourse that was not biased or held an agenda the way the Indian news media was accused of doing so. I also looked at the role of the Sikh and Indian diaspora in creating that shift. That's awesome. Um, How have your IR courses helped you to analyze this protest? So the first class that comes to mind is obviously your Politics of India class that I took in my junior year. Um, Part of why I chose to explore the farmers' protest is because I had already learned about the political landscape of the country, as well as the growing role of special interests such as corporations and the role of corruption in the Indian government. But this did not mean at all that I had that I have a complete understanding of Indian politics, but the class definitely gave me a foundation to begin to understand the economic side of the protests, as well as the history of agricultural reforms and deregulation. Now, for this episode, Sadia, you were able to speak with Professor uh, Vikash Rawal, an economist at Jawaharlal Nehru University in Delhi, India. And that was great to be able to, to connect, even those on the other side of, of the world. So let's listen to that conversation now. Thank you so much for agreeing to be interviewed. A lot of these podcast listeners will not be too familiar with the farmers' protests and the proposed laws, so I think starting with the basics would be a good idea. So why did these protests emerge, and what exactly were the policies that were being introduced? 
So there were three laws that were introduced. In uh, they were initially introduced as what are called ordinances, which are essentially emergency legislations, which can be introduced for a maximum period of six months by executive order. They don't require to be passed by the parliament. So they were introduced as, as emergency orders, emergency legislation, which was itself an anomaly. Uh, this was done during, right in the bang in the middle of the pandemic and the lockdowns and so on. So, so obviously the intent was to use the, 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 the fact that people were unlikely to be protest or their you know, space for protest was going to be limited. Uh, these were in fact preceded by, you see, these were in the area of agriculture, which under the in Indian constitutions has always been seen to fall in the domain of the states. And until June of last year, the central government had been uh, trying to get the states to bring about reforms of this kind. So there had been an attempt for, for a fairly long time to try and bring states to 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 get the states to bring in these these the reforms in this direction the states had been unwilling had been dragging their feet simply because they were they knew that these were going to be unpopular so and then once the pandemic hit government in, in fact the central government publicly made appeals that states should use the pandemic to bring about these amendments and then they flipped. They basically in July they decided this was too valuable an opportunity to waste, trying to get the states to trying to convince the states to use it. We should usurp their powers and bring about central legislation. So in July they first bring in these ordinances, which then are you know basically bulldozed through the parliament with brute majority under opposition of under protest by opposition no discussions allowed no voting happens and they are simply declared passed in the parliament so so you know you they basically did a facade they basically did uh, they had a, a parliament session for a few days with the single point agenda of passing these legislations these legislations so there are three legislation uh, one that deals with contract farming, uh, which essentially provides a deregulated framework for contract farming in which companies can enter into contracts with farmers, with, with small farmers, uh, without any regulatory framework at all. So essentially says that state is not going to intervene. It's it's only between the farmers and the companies and and, and they are allowed to set the terms as, as they like. So, so it provides an extremely deregulated environment for production through contract farming arrangement. Uh, the second law was about marketing. So the first law is about production. The second law is about marketing, where again, uh, the state says that uh, the companies can buy produce from markets outside the system of regulated markets. So India, most states in India have a system of regulated markets in which, uh, in which uh, basic regulations on how the produce has to be priced, how the valuation has to be done, how it has to be weighed. You know the 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 basic regulation on how the market should function to ensure that farmers are not discriminated against. There is no monopoly pricing and so on. Uh, you you 
you have a system of regulation and these regulations are designed to operate in notified markets so there are areas which are notified as markets and agricultural produce of certain kind can only be sold in those markets there are states where these regulations are not effectively implemented but some kind of regulatory mechanism is there but this new law basically said that anybody can buy produce outside these markets they defined a term called market area that there could be these new market areas identified and anybody could buy or sell produce outside in these market areas and none of the regulations would apply so again the the key point was that you were going to uh, take away the whole system of do away with the whole system of regulation of agricultural marketing so the first law was about deregulating production the second law was about deregulating markets and in fact it said that uh, no taxes can be imposed on 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 that uh, those transactions state cannot regulate it state has no role to play in uh, resolving disputes in all of that so so basically powers of states were taken away by the federal government by the central government uh, through this law in in so far as regulation of markets was concerned the third law was about um, uh, retail so so start the first law production second law uh, you know farm gate the the marketing of produced by farmers and the third law about about retail so it basically covers the entire supply chain for food uh, the third law was an amendment of a 1956 law which was an uh, which was called essential commodities act that's a law which uh, essentially provides regulatory powers in so far as retail trade is concerned that is it prevents uh, retailers stockists distributors from holding essential commodities to you know jack up the prices so so uh, you know if the 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 governments had powers to intervene if anybody was found to be holding the uh, these essential commodities now essential commodities amendment act of 19 uh, of 2020 the third law that was passed last year basically took away those powers or considerably weakened the powers to act against hoarding which essentially meant that anybody anybody in the supply chain any big company any agro business company any stockist distributor could hold any amount of these commodities and and the and the governments have no powers to regulate it this became so problematic that you know over the last year uh, so when the protest started last year supreme court intervened and put some kind of a stay on implementation of these acts the last act that i was talking about became so problematic that even during the last year while the government vehemently opposed the stay by supreme court argued against the stay in the supreme court it used the supreme court stay to impose stock holdings on pulses and edible oils you see the the, the problem is so severe that stock holdings can be used to create huge volatility in the retail market resulting in very high sort of inflation in food commodities to prevent it even during this period the state the central government was used was actually forced to use the previous act in fact it was dubious because the supreme court had had stayed the new law it had not resurrected the old law 
despite that the central government used the old law to impose stock holding limits defeating its own argument that imposing these stock holdings is a bad idea but they themselves had to do it even during the last year you see so so but coming back to the laws you know the laws essentially covered the entire supply chain from production marketing right through to to retail and were essentially going to deregulate this supply chain uh, provide allow for penetration of big agrobusiness companies in a in an extremely deregulated environment to to take over this entire supply chain that's essentially was the 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 thrust of these these laws and based on everything you've just said about the whole about the three laws and how they're meant to deregulate the entire market if states believed that they were going to be so unpopular, which they were, why was the federal government so insistent on pushing them through? Well, it's clearly, it was clearly at the behest of big, big agribusiness companies that would, would have liked to take over this entire uh, sort of supply chain. So, so I, I mean, I there is no other explanation. This was unpopular. It is. It became very clear. Farmers were vehemently opposed to it. They protested against all sorts of odds. It's incredible, you know, braving the weather, braving the pandemic, and you know, losing so many lives. Farmers kept protesting, kept at it despite every attempt to to sabotage their their struggle. Uh, it it was quite clear that these laws were going to be unpopular. Uh, they proved to be unpopular. Farmers turned out to be politically, uh, let's say, have a stronger political acumen than the government had anticipated. But uh, there is no doubt that these are going to be unpopular. And uh, government knew this very well. And that's the, that was the reason why they were pushed through in this manner during the pandemic. Uh, there was a long history of government trying to, you know, convince states to bring them about, the states dragging their feet, and so on, which went up right up to June of 2020. So, so it's, it's quite incredible. Uh, so the only explanation one has is that this was actually done clearly at the behest of a few big, big agribusiness companies that were eyeing to, to expand in this area. Well, if these laws hadn't been repealed, what would have been their economic impact on the agricultural economy? What would all this deregulation amount to? So one, as I said, the volatility in retail prices was immediately something that, that followed. I mean, you had, even over the last year, several episodes of, of high volatility in essential commodities, and in two cases, forcing the government to impose stock holdings, so uh, stock stock limits. So, so you know, the, the this third law, the weakening of the third law and opening space for speculation and volatility became clear immediately. In case of the second law, also, I think over a fairly short term, one would have seen a situation where the agriculture, the, the regulated agricultural markets, which have been established over several decades, you know, since 1940s, in fact, a huge amount of public investment has been made in establishing these markets, uh, would have uh, deteriorated simply because obviously no buyer would buy in the regulated market if they have to pack, pay a tax inside the premises of this market and not having to pay taxes outside the premises of the of the market. So obviously everybody would have started buying outside the premises of these markets, which would have meant that the system of regulated markets would have collapsed. Now the system of regulated markets is critically linked to the system of public procurement. The state in India, government in India, procures 
in particular wheat and rice at minimum support prices. About a quarter of total produce at the moment is bought by the government, uh, which is uh, peculiar because you see the, the cost of production has gone up quite steeply because of which even if farmers were to get a minimum return on what they do, the output produce price they need is pretty high, which is not a price that open market supports. As a result, government procurement has become extremely important. Now this has happened simply because government has deregulated the input pricing. The the costs have become deregulated, costs have gone up, huge taxes are imposed on, on inputs like diesel. So, so, you know, farmers' costs have gone up, which has pushed the minimum price they need for, you know, even the subsistence income. You know, so, so that has basically made meant that procurement by government at that minimum, what is called the minimum support price has become extremely important. Now, a, a collapse of regulated market uh, infrastructure would have meant that that whole system of procurement prices uh, of government procurement would have been threatened because that, that that procurement happens in regulated markets. And if you don't have those regulated markets, then there is no procurement. So that is, was, in fact, the biggest trigger. And that is the that is, in some sense, still an issue that remains somewhat unresolved. Farmers are demanding a statutory right to be able to sell their produce at what is called the minimum support price, which is really the price uh, which ensures, which is meant to be a price which would ensure farmers uh, sort of minimum decent income. Uh, farmers are in, uh, demanding a statutory right to be able to sell their produce at that price, which the government is unwilling. But, you know, that was in some sense the biggest fear of the farmers that these these laws were going to open floodgates for, for penetration of agribusiness companies would basically be used by the government to wriggle out of its commitment to buy the produce at minimum support price, which the government for a long time has been wanting to, because the government doesn't want to buy all this grain and then have to distribute all this. And, you know, I mean, given the neoliberal thrust of, of the current government, that's, that's a commitment that the government for the last three decades has been trying to get out of. Do you see any way that the government would be able to break out of the cycle of minimum support prices and to change the market in any way? Well, I don't think government should try to should try to break out of the the, the cycle of minimum support prices and procurement. You see, that itself is a is a wrong objective. What the government needs to do, in my view, is to ensure that farmers get minimum income. Now doing so would require a systemic planning for how agricultural uh, production and food supply food, food systems would work now unfortunately what has happened is that over the last three decades because of neoliberal you know the the, the policies of uh, uh, neoliberalism what has happened is that governments have been trying to dismantle systems of of public support and have done it in a piecemeal manner. Now, so what I was saying is, for example, in case of agriculture, what has happened is that systems of support for input prices, systems of support and regulation that ensured that input prices were low have been dismantled. 
you see now you had a system of fertilizer subsidy now fertilizer subsidy is still given so government spends today much more on fertilizer subsidy than it used to three decades ago but that does not result in ensuring that fertilizers are uh, provided to farmers at, at low prices. It simply goes in the pockets of fertilizer companies. So what you're saying is that, so earlier what you did was you gave a subsidy to fertilizer companies and you required them to reduce the prices in lieu of that. So, so fertilizer companies sold prices at low prices and you compensated the companies by way of providing them a subsidy. Now what you do is that you provide them a subsidy but you don't require them to bring the prices down. So it's, it's a crazy system. So this government is spending on the subsidy, but the prices are not lowered. Prices are as high as the prices in the international market. I mean, it's, it's, it's a crazy, in fact, it's higher than the world prices of, of, of fertilizers. So you have a situation where you've given up the whole system of planning, ensure, in fact, there is a big crisis of fertilizer as we talk. The fertilizer supply is not there. There's a huge shortage. Uh, fertilizer is being black marketed. Now, this has happened because of deregulation. Now, the problem, the, what needs to be done is to bring back a system of planning in which this entire thing as a system would be planned for and strategies would work in sync. You see, you, you need to think of inputs production, procurement, sale, and distribution, and all of this have to work, work in tandem. If government is going to procure, but not distribute, you will end up with the situation we have where government is sitting on over 100 million tons of food grain, not knowing what to do. They don't want to distribute it. India is incredible. India has the largest food stocks in the world, public food stocks. 100 million tons of grain is rotting in the godowns of the government, while India also has the largest number of hungry people in the world. It's, it is a country with largest number of people who cannot get adequate calories, while the food grain is rotting in the godowns of the government. That's the fallacy. It's incredible that this is a country with largest amount of food grains and largest number of hungry people. Now, if you have a system of procurement, which is not also combined with a system of distributing that grain, the go-downs will just keep blowing up. What will you do with that grain? So that's the kind of problem that has happened because you know the, the, you've not fitted all the pieces of the jigsaw and, and, and you have a situation where things break down. So it just seems like there's this endless cycle of um, masses of starving people, and then you have all of these grains and all of this rice just sitting there, and the federal government isn't seemingly... In fact, it's incredible. From the time when pandemic struck to today, the amount of grain in the public go-downs of the government has increased. Over a period of crisis, the obvious thing that the government should be doing is to distribute the grain but they have been holding more than they have been giving out. So the, the, the stocks have gone up. So before I move on, I also wanted to ask, living in India and working at a university in the capital of New Delhi, how did you experience the protests and what was it like on the ground? Did you experience it in any way? Well, yes. I mean, uh, we, we did go to the protest sites every now and then. Uh, well, let me put it this way. It was difficult. Um, I would say, peop okay, speaking for people in Delhi at large, a lot of people didn't go. 
So, you know, there's been this quite rightly uh, perception that people in Delhi were uh, not joining the protests as much as they, they, they did in the past, uh, even, even as much as they did in the past. Uh, you know, protests that were important for India's uh, democracy, protests that were important for, you know, important public issues, the extent to which people would join these, these protests and demonstrations. In this case, that participation was less. It was obviously less, most importantly, for uh, because of the pandemic. There were fears of pandemic and pandemic was a big issue. I mean, we used to go, but I know so many, so many people who would go to protest and ended up contacting COVID at some point, you know. I mean, I, I won't say that they all necessarily got it in the protest, but clearly, you know, I mean, the fact that people were mobile, people had to move about. I mean, every farmer activist, peasant activist I know, sometime over the last year contacted COVID. So they did have to brave it. There is no... I mean, there's no denying that. I mean, it was a big problem. These protests were happening. They had to participate in it. They had to lead it. They had to be moving about. So they did have to face it. Now, I mean, for them, it was obviously, they realized that this was an existential crisis for the peasantry. You know, it was a do or die situation for the peasants. And therefore, they came out despite the fear of the pandemic. I don't think one should... Uh, sort of ignore that. I mean, it's a, it was a huge risk that was being taken. People died. I mean, in fact, this number of farmers who died is clearly a huge underestimate. And these are 700 people who died there, you know, in protests, but many more would have contracted COVID, gone back to their villages, and many of them may have died there. Though Those are not even being counted here as deaths that happened due to the you know, due to what the government did. I would not say that these were deaths due to protests. These were protests because of, these were deaths that happened because of this reckless act of the government to bring about these uh, sort of radical changes in system of agricultural production in the middle of the pandemic. Why couldn't this at least, at the very least, wait until we were over with this pandemic, have consultation, and then, then bring about whatever you want to bring about? Why do this in the middle of this? Expose everybody to this risk. So, I mean, it was reckless and I think it did cause that damage. Uh, I, so I, I think, uh, but, you know, it was it was quite incredible to have a situation where at least six borders of Delhi had this kilometer, kilometer long queues of tractor trolleys, celebration happening, protests happening and meetings happening. It was quite incredible. And if you went there, what struck me most was the incredible level of political awareness that common farmers had, had acquired during these protests. The, 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 you know, the awareness, uh, the, the understanding, knowledge, the role of the media, the role of the state, what the state was doing. And you could have a discussion about any of these issues with every woman there, with every man there, you know, what these were about. And people would tell you, people would ask you questions on why are 
people of Delhi not standing with us? Or why are students not standing with us? Why are they not coming in greater numbers? You know, these were issues that people had great understanding of and were talking about them, debating them. So, you know, what was happening at the protest site was actually quite incredible. And uh, in some sense, also heartening, you know, that that common people, working people could acquire that kind of uh, understanding and knowledge when they participated in, in acts of this kind, could actually uh, develop that kind of fine understanding of, of what was going on, was in some sense also heartening. So it's obviously being at these protests gave, as you said, the farmers a greater sense of social awareness of the federal government and of all the mechanisms and um, power dynamics at play. Do you think that misinformation might have played a role media, like by the media in regards to why the people of Delhi did not stand with the farmers as much as it was expected? Well, I don't think it would be true to say that people of Delhi did not stand in solidarity and people did not come out, let me put it this way. And I, so, you know, I don't, I do think that there was a general, uh, under, I think it would have been quite common. People did think that what was being done was was not right. What the government had done, you know, bulldozing the laws like this was not something that anybody would approve of. Uh, you know, except if you are a cadre of the the ruling party or something like that. Kind. But even even for them, even among them, you could sense that there were people who would say this is not right. But you know. But then from that to actually, you know, pick up the courage to go out, you know, that obviously would not, did not happen. And I think for that, I would particularly blame the fact that we were in the middle of the pandemic. We were in the middle of the pandemic, you know, people would not come out. Middle classes, those who could afford to stay in would stay in, you see. And, and urban working classes were too busy you know, dealing with their own problems of livelihoods. You know, this was also a period where where they were themselves struggling because of loss of livelihoods and employment and so on. So for them, there's that other battle that's going on. So, you know, I mean, I wouldn't blame them too much for that. It was a hugely unpopular thing, even among the urban, uh, urban population. And in Punjab and Haryana, rural or urban. I mean, if you didn't stand with farmers, you know, the, you would you would have faced a social boycott. I mean, things are so bad. I mean, it was such an unpopular thing. If you were an artist, if you were a teacher, if you were a student, you had to say where you stood on this. It's clear that the federal government was set on, at least the ruling party was set on bulldozing these laws through, and they did. But what were the responses of the individual states as their power was sort of taken away from them? Well, I think the states were divided in this case on the political lines. Uh, states that are ruled by opposition parties spoke their mind. States that were ruled by the by the BJP, even when they did not agree with it, could not obviously speak their minds because their party gave the mandate that they had to support the, the laws. Now, this was... a. I mean, in states like Haryana, for example, BJP is in power and it was facing a huge opposition from farmers. And I mean, it, things became so bad that the leaders of the ruling party could not, uh, you know, could not go to their homes. I mean, they were, you know, 
there were demonstrations all over the place. They just couldn't face people. They could not go to any public meeting. They could not go to any public function. So it was quite clear. They knew what, what was happening. They were going to be, uh, they were going to be routed. And uh, uh, so, but despite that, I mean, at the, on the face of it, the chief minister had to keep giving statements in support of the laws. And that's uh, that was uh, the the mandate of the party. So so I mean, what the states publicly the the public positions that state did, took basically were conditioned by this. But uh, it was quite clear that across most states there was a huge groundswell of opposition against these laws. And that was going to have an effect. It had an effect in in state elections that happened, and it was clearly going to be a major factor in uh, elections in Uttar Pradesh and Punjab that were that are that are coming up. So, so I mean, there is no doubt that the repeal that has happened has happened in view of those elections because the ruling party was going to lose them. So, would you categorize this repealing of the laws as entirely a political strategy, or do you think? there's any change in perspective on the fact that these laws are always going to be unpopular, even if they are brought up again? As far as the government is concerned, it's very clear. They still believe that the laws are the right thing to do. I mean, that's been, I mean, if you look at the text of the Repeal Act, it still says that. We think that the laws are the right thing to do. We were unable to convince some a, a small section of farmers is what they're doing, what they're saying. So so the the fact that we believe this is the, way to go forward is it continues to be their position. So the possibility is that something of this kind, you know, it may not be these three laws, it may be a slightly modified version of them, they may come gradually, they may come one after another. Uh, but the fact that this government would want to move agricultural policies in this direction remains their position. And now that the laws have been repealed, like so much organizing and so much momentum went into these past, I would say like a year and a half, two years, where do you think the organizers of these protests and the farmers themselves who now have so much knowledge on the mechanisms at play, where do you think they'll go with this momentum? And what do you think is like the future direction? Yeah, the the demand for um, uh, minimum support price, Compensation for all these deaths that have taken for uh, taken place and and uh, and so on. I mean, those demands still remain. And and as of now, organizations have not withdrawn their agitation. So we need to see what happens to these. But I think there is no doubt that um, that these protests have given a new life to to. You know, larger issues of democracy, of how the government is, how the country is being run by the current government. All of those issues have, you know, come back to uh, to pub public debate, and I I have no doubt that these protests would fuel, uh, you know, a lot of those uh, discussions and debate and. And, uh, you know, we were having big protests on the question of uh, Citizenship Amendment Act before the pandemic hit. Uh, you know, I mean, those issues remain. There are other major issues in the country. And I do think that these protests would, you know, fuel a lot of other things that, you know, are important and, and uh, uh, therefore 
yeah so so you know how this get channel chat how this energy is channelized is something we have to see but i i mean there this has created this has opened up a lot of possibilities i definitely agree i um when i when i was doing my research on the farmers protest one of the first things that came to mind was this was the protest against the citizenship bill like before the pandemic and those have kind of obviously died down but i'm really curious to see if they flare up again because of the fact that there's so much more like the power of the farmers protest is massive in the fact that you can see what the will of the people can get politicians and the government to do so i'm extremely curious to see what happens next i think what is what certainly has happened is that the farmers protests have shown that you can fight for interests of people and if you are organized and if you fight hard enough you can win that this it is not as if this government has the kind of political strength that is invincible and that's that's been defeated I and mean, that's gone so so if you can fight hard if you can organize well you you you, you can you can push this government to and prevent them from from taking anti people actions so you know I and mean, that's become clear and if if that's clear that opens up a lot of possibilities no oh, thanks thank you so much for doing this no at all okay thank you sandhya thank you have thank a good you. one Wow, there was so much in that conversation to unpack, but I'm going to step back and let you two take the lead on doing that. Okay. So, Adia, I was wondering, um, before we get started, if you could supplement Professor Rawal's comments with a brief background on India's agricultural sector in the broader macro economy of India and previous efforts at reforming the sector. What I'm really curious about is why have two successive governments, the Indian National Congress-led UPA and the BJP-led NDA, which are from rather different ideological backgrounds, attempted these reforms, even though agricultural policy is really in the purview of the states and not the federal government? Yeah, um, sure. So there's obviously no doubt that agriculture is crucial to India and its economy. Over half of the workforce is located in the agriculture sector and millions live in rural India. The push for agricultural reforms did not begin under Modi. The Green Revolution under Prime Minister Indira Gandhi was meant to improve agricultural output by introducing high yielding seeds, state support for fertilizer and a new irrigation system. She also began the process of deregulating India's economy in the 1980s, which would leave the economy less monitored less monitored by the federal government and give businesses more freedom in how they operated. In 1991, Manmohan Singh, who was then finance minister, was the architect of, li- of liberalization policies that opened up India's economy to the global market. As prime minister later on, he was faced with farmers who were being faced with crippling debt, and that began a wave of farmer suicides. He implemented farming reforms that raised wages and relieved farmers of some of their debt by allowing them to partially default. Going back to the reforms themselves, it's clear that this move by the federal government in India was a move to fasten the process of transforming the Indian economy. Minimum support prices for farming goods, such as rice and other grains, have existed since the 1960s and were meant to increase food reserves and prevent food shortage or famine. They were not meant to be permanent policy, and regardless of their ideological differences, there seems to be a common understanding at the federal level that India must begin to move away from continuing to be a proto-welfare state. 
As we discussed in Professor Yadav's Politics of India class, the state is geared towards growth with no attention paid to the quality of that growth. In this way, the state's ambition to highly integrate into the global economy and to be a hub for global corporations is not matching up to India's Fabian socialist origins. Additionally, the levels of corruption in the government and the economy make it so that political leaders need the support of business leaders to fund them and their campaigns. Sadia, you know, I find that kind of historical framing there really useful to understanding the, the conversation that you had with Professor Rawal. One of the things I was really struck with uh, by Professor Rawal's comments was how, for him at least, he sees this as a really pivotal moment for democracy and people power within India. Uh, and it's striking to see in his kind of framing how successful the farmers were uh, in terms of self-empowerment, but also in informing and empowering people across the divides of Indian society to push back against these government ordinances, even during a time of crisis uh, with COVID. Sadia, what were some of the elements of the conversation that you found striking? And how does that relate to the research that you were doing for your summer project? So a lot of what Professor Rowal said and what I didn't really what I did not really explore in my summer research was looking at the economic side of these laws and that's definitely something that has now added to what I discovered in the summer. One thing that struck me in the conversation with Professor was Professor Rowal's comment that being in this protest allowed farmers a greater and new political understanding. As he said, the government had greatly underestimated the quote-unquote acumen of the farmers. They were entirely aware about the role of the media and the role of the state. The farmers' protest is just an example of how successful a people's movement can be when it's well-planned. The idea that the federal government is invincible was shattered because of the will of the people. In my research over the summer, I saw just how organized and insistent the protesters were. They would travel back home to tend to their land and then travel back to the protest sites. At the individual protest sites, they had tents set up that were designated for cooking and for first aid. Farmer and documentarian Gurdip Daliwal co-founded the Instagram page Trolley Times, which reports on the impact of the farmers, the farmer stories, and the challenges they face. The page kept track of how long the protests had been running, as well as the death toll. The platform aimed to create solidarity amongst farmers who had come from different religions and regions across India. By doing so, there was a concerted effort to make sure that the protest did not falter and that there was some sense of unity. The fact that this was all happening in the midst of the pandemic with rising infection and death rates in India shows just how do or die the situation was for the farmers. There's no doubt, as Professor Rawal said, that COVID numbers and the death toll was much higher than it was actually reported. But for these farmers, their livelihoods were at stake, and that's what drove them to mobilize. You know, I was particularly struck by Professor Rawal's equation of farmers with the word peasant. What do you think is at stake in that rhetorical shift? Are the farmers who participated in these protests really best described as peasants? What does your research from the summer tell you about the financial status of the farmers who were actually a part of this protest? What I'm kind of getting at is how different are these farmers in India from, say, French farmers who um, have a reputation for protesting about the removal of their state subsidies? I think that rhetorical shift is super important to pick up on. And I didn't fully agree with Professor Rowal equating farmers with peasant because a lot of these protesters did own the land that they worked on and cultivated despite the debt that they were in. 
However, I think that the rhetorical shift is meant to signal the idea that the farmers were at the mercy of the federal government and corporations that would eventually put farmers out of their own businesses. If the laws had remained in place, then it would mean that the farmers would eventually lose their land as well. I don't know much about the farmers that are protesting in France, but from what I do know, I do not think that they're much different from the Indian farmers in the sense that in both of these cases, their livelihoods are at stake. The similarities are there with the fact that there's a string of suicides by farmers, the fact that both countries have very high agricultural outputs, and that they already these farmers already have pretty low wages. Even now that the three farming laws have been repealed, the farmers and their families in India who are still protesting have not left the sites and they probably will not until the minimum support price is given greater legal standing by the federal government. You know, another aspect of the conversation that was striking to me was Professor Rawal's comment about how the state stockpiles of grains actually increased during this crisis and a crisis uh, of COVID, right, in India. It makes me reflect on the multiple ways in which the state interacts in the market, no matter which market we're talking about. And a few weeks ago, in my own intro to IR course, we were talking about international political economy. And specifically, we were discussing the ever-presence of the state, even within neoliberal fantasies of a so-called free market. So Professor Rawal's observations about the Indian government's procurement policies existing alongside a deliberate lack of long-range planning seems a painfully accurate snapshot of misguided neoliberalism within a a pseudo-developmentalist state. Did either one of you have thoughts about the failure of state planning, especially regarding food distribution in this time of crisis? Well, you know what? What I would think about it and what kind of saddens me about India, and I think Professor Rawal alluded to this as well, is just how fat the rats are near the public storage areas and the godowns or the warehouses. The rats are obese in a country with massive entrenched poverty and malnutrition. And one of the reasons there are so many fat rats running around is because of the state's terrible inability to stockpile grains without a significant portion of it being eaten by rodents. We're talking about thousands of tons of grain per year. Of course, this legislation was partly a confession that the state is not incentivized to store and distribute grain efficiently, and it was a recognition that direct contract farming has been occurring for about 30 years. In other words, I don't see what's happening as the failure of planning, but the failure to transition to a more efficient production chain. And while the state wants to bring in agribusiness to better organize the supply chain, I'm not sure that this is because of uh, a neoliberal ideology. Because the Hindu nationalist BJP is actually mercantilist and even occasionally indulges in autarkic or self-sufficiency fantasies. Yeah, Professor Rawal's comment about the rotting food stores definitely painted a picture of just a very vivid picture of just how bad the situation is. And I definitely agree with Professor Yadav that it's not a failure in planning. The country, India, has had a history of planning commissions throughout its years since independence, and yet they still have not figured out a way to remedy the issue of excess food grain and how to distribute that in a country that already has such a high starving population. I guess another dimension of this issue is how India's domestic policies of purchasing grain and stockpiling it impacts India's efforts to integrate with the global liberal trade regime. India has tried to make the case that the WTO 
trade round in Bali in 2013 that it should be allowed to procure and hoard wheat and rice to help its poor and its farmers. But India's trade partners, particularly Brazil and Argentina, have clearly seen through this, um, and they argued that beyond a basic threshold of about 10% of the cost of production, um, that hoarding wheat and rice was a protectionist measure to limit imports from other countries um, and a way for India to protect its exchange reserves. So what we are kind of seeing is India, which is now a middle-income country that is absolutely food secure, is trying to use this image of poverty of India as a poor country and its poor literally as a, as a kind of shield to hide its mercantilist approach to global trade. It is very disheartening to see the manipulation of this image of poverty by India, because when it comes down to it, the already vulnerable poor population is who will be most impacted by the fact that India is absolutely not using all of its excess grain to help its poor and its farmers. That, that's great. That's a really insightful discussion there. Um, you know, for each episode, we try to incorporate a, a non-traditional text, whether it's a song, a poem, or a diary entry. And for this episode, Sadia, you chose the Kassan Anthem. Can you tell us a little bit about that selection and why you chose it? Yeah, definitely. So there were a few songs that came out in support of these protests and the farmers that I really liked, but this one in particular stood out to me. It was written and sung by a group of singers from Haryana and Punjab, the two states in India with the highest agricultural output, and these were also the states that were instrumental in beginning these protests in 2020. That's great. We're going to listen to that song now, but we're going to also drop a link to the YouTube video uh, in the comments for uh, the podcast. But let's listen to the song now. ਠੰਡ ਦੇ ਆ ਦੇਣਾ ਅਸੀਆਂ ਤੋਂ ਟੱਪੀਆਂ ਨੇ ਉਮਰਾਂ ਅੱਜ ਕਿੰਨੇ ਦਿਨ ਹੋ ਗਏ ਬਾਰਡਰਾਂ ਤੇ ਬੈਠਿਆਂ ਨੂੰ ਤੈਨੂੰ ਭੋਰਾ ਖਿਆਲ ਨਹੀਂ ਚੁੱਪ ਸੀ ਚੁੱਪਿਆਂ ਚੁੱਪ ਰਵਾਂਗੇ ਉਹ ਤਬਕਾ ਝੱਲਿਆ ਨਹੀਂ ਅਸੀਂ ਸਿਕੰਦਰ ਵਰਗੇ ਦਾ ਤੇਰਾ ਝੱਲਾਂਗੇ ਜੇ ਸਾਡੀਆਂ ਜ਼ਮੀਨਾਂ ਖੋਏਗੀ ਆ ਤੇਰਾ ਦਿੱਲੀ ਮੱਲਾਂਗੇ ਸਭ ਰਾਜਾਂ ਪਿੱਛੇ ਬੈਰੀਗੇਟ ਪਾਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ ਜੱਟ ਨਹੀਂ ਪੰਜਾਬੋਂ ਇਹ ਆਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ ਉਹ ਵਿਕ ਗਏ ਆਪਾਂ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਦਾ ਮੀਡੀਆ ਆ ਬੀਬੀਸੀ ਦੇ ਉੱਤੇ ਝੋਟੇ ਛਾਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ
ਡੰਡਾ ਡੁੱਕ ਦੇਣਗੇ ਨਹੀਂ ਅਜੇ ਪੁੱਤ ਪੁੱਤ ਆ ਕੇ ਬਿਠਾਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ ਸਭ ਰਾਜਾ ਪਿੱਛੇ ਬੈਰੀ ਗੇਟ ਪਾਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ ਚੱਟਨੀ ਪੰਜਾਬੋਏ ਹਿਆਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ ਉਹ ਵਿੱਕ ਕੇ ਆਪਾਂ ਇੰਡੀਆ ਦਾ ਮੀਡੀਆ ਬੀਬੀਸੀ ਦੇ ਉੱਤੇ ਝੋਟੇ ਛਾਏ ਹੋਏ ਨੇ ਜਿੱਤ ਕਹਿੰਦੇ ਹੱਥੇ ਜਾਵਾਂਗੇ ਭਾਵੇਂ ਪਹਿਲਾਂ ਬਣ ਜਿੱਤ 
ਫੌਜ ਗੁਰੂ ਦੀ ਭਰਦੀਆਂ ਅੱਖਾਂ ਦੇਖ ਮੌਜ ਗੁਰੂ ਦੀ ਜਿੰਨਾਂ ਨੂੰ ਤੂੰ ਕਹਿੰਦੀ ਸੀ ਨਸ਼ੇੜੀ ਦਿੱਲੀਏ ਮੇਰੀ ਗੇਟ ਆਉਂਦੇ ਤੇਰੇ ਤੇੜੀ ਦਿੱਲੀਏ ਗੁਲਾਮੀ ਸਾਡੀ ਦੀ ਜੋ ਖੜਦੇ ਸਕੀਮ ਫਿਰਦੇ ਸਾਡੇ ਸਾਲੇ ਨਹੀਂ ਜੋ ਖੋਣ ਨੂੰ ਜ਼ਮੀਨ ਫਿਰਦੇ ਨਾ ਕਿਸੇ ਤੋਂ ਡਰਦੇ ਨਾ ਹੀ ਨਜ਼ਾਇਜ਼ ਡਰਾਉਂਦੇ ਨੇ ਬੈਕੇ ਨਾਲ ਜਵਾਨਾ ਬਾਬੇ ਤਰਨਾ ਲਾਉਂਦੇ Oh that was excellent. I just want to say a big thank you to Professor Rawal for such an enlightening interview and thank you to Professor Dunn and Professor Yadav for joining me for this very fun and exciting conversation. Yeah, Sadia, thank you so much for that fantastic conversation you had with Professor Rawal. It was such a, a rich and informative conversation. Vikash, thank you so much uh for joining us. I always learn a great deal when talking to you and this is once again no exception. Uh it was great to explore the complexities behind the brief news stories regarding India's farmer protests with you both as always this episode helps us appreciate how complicated world affairs can be You've been listening to It's more complicated than that a podcast on world affairs produced by the students and faculty of the International Relations Program at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. This episode was conceived by Sadia Rahman, hosted by Vikash Yadav and Kevin Dunn. The producer is me, Kelly Walker. This has been a production of the IR program at HWS and of the Geneva Sound Factory. Thank you for listening.